0: Listener Production.
1: Okay, are you recording?
2: (laughs) Greetings all. Thank you so much for giving your ears to episode 134 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring dual triathlon world champion Emma
3: Carney. And the 1997 ITU world champion is Emma Carney. An emphatic victory of sheer brilliance, the timing, absolute perfection.
2: Emma Carney is a unique individual, an athlete that was tremendously gifted but also had a work ethic matched by none, and I mean none. Em pushed herself so hard she literally nearly killed herself. Her desire to win overrode everything else, governing bodies, coaches, competitors, media. M fought with them all along the way, and as she explains, this relentless, relentless drive to be the best and be first all the time it's not an easy way to live your life, but she would not have it any other way. In a world where we deem it best that our kids don't have the score kept in their sport, where no one wins or loses, Em's approach was the polar opposite and still is. There's a strong argument for both approaches. So
1: you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know, mystery. What is to be so much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by
2: By the way, if you're in lockdown at the moment, like I am, it sucks, it absolutely sucks, there's no way getting around that, but hopefully you are hanging in there and staying in touch with loved ones as best you can and making the smallest of wins the biggest of positives. I hope you're going okay. Emma's book, Hard Wired, Life, Death and Triathlon is a brilliant read, check it out. I really enjoyed the ferocity of it, it is full on. Emma Carney is without doubt the most single-minded athlete that I have ever spoken to. In her eyes, she either won or she failed. Enjoy the story of an athlete who gave it everything every time. Emma Carney
1: So when you search and then you find and know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind, you see clearly and now you know mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie I come on children try it with me we want to
2: Month, I I. Welcome to the Howie Games, a superstar of Australian sport, Hall of Famer, a two-time world triathlon champion and a serious, serious athlete. Her name is Emma Carney and I am pumped to have her on the show. Emma, it's great to see your smiling face. How are you going? Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, we are here to talk about life and your phenomenal book, and I don't say that lightly, Hardwired Life, Death and Triathlon, which you kindly sent me. I have read it and it's not your normal sports book. And Before we get into it, if you had to say what this book is about in a hundred words or less, what would you say to me?
0: Um, what I've tried to do is I've tried to write a book that is an honest account of an athlete trying to be the best in the world from a very young age and then negotiating retirement. And retirement for me was a very, very sad occasion. And, um, yeah, it's, it's it's just a full account. And a lot of people have said to me it's a really honest account. Yes. And I'm really surprised by that because I, I thought when you wrote an autobiography, that's what you did. Um, I kept diaries at the time, so it's very detailed as well because I was always going to write a book, but it was going to have a better ending. <laughs> Well, it hasn't
2: finished yet. This is part two no, is still to come.
0: No, it's, I'm, I'm writing another another book. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it, there's a lot of lessons in there on about living your own life and not, and this is going to sound really arrogant, not lowering your standards to fit in.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think it sounds arrogant. I've I, I read the book over a period of two weeks and I finished it yesterday. So I got through the last hundred pages yesterday and I found it a fascinating read, so much so that, I think it's fine to talk about. It. I sent you an email yesterday, M, em, saying, "Wow, M, I've never done an email like this before. A podcast. This is so many highs in this book, but so many lows and difficult things. As two people that don't know each other, I'm not sure how to proceed in this podcast because I don't want to ask you questions that could be upsetting, etc. And you sent me a beautiful, beautiful email back saying you, you've you've lived life and you've felt life." And you're happy to talk about anything. It is that type of book. It is a courageous book. And uh, to be honest, I was talking about it with my wife yesterday. I said, I'm not sure how to go about this because there's some really dark times in this book.
0: Yeah, there are. And I think, um, you know, I'm very, very fortunate that I don't suffer from depression because I don't think I'd still be here. And, you know, you read about that and there's, you know, there's investigations going on in Swimming Australia at the moment and there'll be more in sport and, athletes talk about periods that you know they don't know how they got through it and I was never that type of person that suffered from depression but I can see why people would go you know what this is this is so bad I don't know how I'm going to get through it yeah it's, it's really it's really sad and I've um it's a big reason why I coach now because I I don't want athletes to have to go through, male and female. I don't want them to have to go through what I went through because it is wrong.
2: We will talk about a lot of what you went through. Before we get into your journey, you mentioned it in the player Profile about mediocrity and being scared of mediocrity. What is it like to live life when you are as driven as you are? Is it difficult <laughs> to be as driven and high-achieving as you have been in your life? Is it an easy life? Is it a difficult life? No,
0: I think it's a difficult way to live. And I think it's um, – I actually frustrate myself because, um, you know, I've <laughs> – as i progress through life, I have increasingly smaller circles that I can work in.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Um, yeah, it's, it's very, very frustrating. And there's only a certain number of um, – what are they? I suppose they're called communities that I can work in, and one is World Triathlon and another one is, is my old school. Um, Wesley in Melbourne Wesley College and then the two organizations that understand me that understand that I actually push and push and push and push because I actually would like the best to happen not because I'm trying to be disruptive or not because I'm opinionated or um, but it is I think it is quite a relentless way to live yeah
2: it must be tough to be relentless all the time. Are you, are you re- but but I, I, I say I don't, yeah, are you relentless with everything in your life or no. just the sporting part of your life?
0: No, I think it's, you know, like I have a passion for sport and um, I'll put it this way. My sport uh, when I was racing, the sport of triathlon, we were by far the best country in the world. Yes. And um, we're now, we're going to drop outside the top five. And I, I just don't see a reason why we should be like that. There's no, a country doesn't suddenly stop having talent. A country doesn't stop, um, you know, having a, a younger group of athletes through that suddenly don't want to win. And, you, you know, you need to look at what's being done in the sport. So in that area, I'm very, very much push to make things better because they should be better. Australia should be the greatest country in the world in my sport of triathlon, absolutely no doubt.
2: Have you learnt to push in a different way?
0: Um, The AIS would say no and I've been told by, you know, Peter Condi at the AIS that I needed to um, adjust the way I behave. But you don't have time in sport. You don't have time to sit there and wait four years, okay. Let's see if this works. Let's see if that works. No, you don't have time. It's not working. We need to change things.
2: What do you mean adjust the way you behave?
0: I don't know. I think, um, you know, the the frustrations, like I'll actually say, you're annoying me rather than, you know, let it go through and let's see if we can do this and let's see. No, no, you're annoying me leave me alone, ring me when you've got something that you can contribute to. So that's, you know, that's construed as being unproductive, but I don't have time. I'm not, I'm an unpaid coach by my National Federation. I have athletes coming through the junior ranks that are beating, um, you know, athletes that are categorised. And, you know, then I get phone calls to ask me if I can do this or that, I have to travel somewhere. I'm a single mum. Can, can Jack come as well? No. Okay,
2: well, I'm out. Right. Stop annoying me. <laughs> so it's a pretty direct approach. Yeah. Which, which, which comes up throughout the book. Um, you still look incredibly fit and we'll get to what happened to, to finish your career and issues with your heart and stuff, which is a big part of your story, but you obviously really make an effort to stay from what looks like over Zoom incredibly fit still. <laughs>
0: Well, I still swim, bike, and run most days. I um, Actually, I'm, I don't swim so much, to be honest. I was never great swimming. Yeah. But the biking and the running, you know, I, I'm out there with the athletes. I think that's the best way to to see how they're going. If an athlete blows up and I catch them on the bike or the run, I say, hey, you know, like a 50-year-old woman's just caught
2: you and she's got a heart <laughs> condition <laughs> and you would have been the best in the world because, luck. <laughs> so if... A lot of people will be able to relate to this. Say, I said to you, "I am. You cannot exercise for three days. What's that going to do to you?"
0: I mean, I have days off. Yep. And you know, there's. I mean, as soon as someone says I can't do something, okay, that does my head in. Yes. So I immediately would have a problem with that anyway, even if I could get through it. But um, it's it's part of my life. It's part of you know. It's like breathing every day outside doing something. I didn't do triathlon because I was good at it. I did it because I loved it. I love sports. I love everything to do with being outdoors. I don't understand. That's another thing these days. There's a lot of coaching indoors and using trainers and let's get the data and let's smash the hell out of this screen. And and it's like, no, go outside and suffer in the wind, suffer on the road. Mm. We've got the greatest country in the world to be out in. Why are we inside looking at data?
2: And when, when you train now, and as I said, we'll, we'll get to the heart situation, do you still suffer or is it just well, getting out and enjoying?
0: Yeah, I can't suffer as much
2: because i will yep. you
0: know, I've got a, a few problems with my um, body. Yep. But, um, yeah. But, no, you know, like athletes will push me and, I'll, you know, we might do a three-hour ride mm-hmm. and it, it won't be up and down Beach Road in Melbourne, it will be up King Lake Way. So I like to use the environment to test the athletes as well. So, of course, I'm being tested. So, the, you know, it's it's still hard work. Um, my cardiologist tells me that it's still excessive training and I tell him he doesn't know what training is.
2: <laughs> but he knows hearts. <laughs> he does know hearts
0: very well, fortunately.
2: Right. So where did it start? Where did this athletic journey for you start, Em?
0: It started... I was very fortunate growing up. Um, There's a combination of things, I think. So I was born in England. My dad, um, well, we all were. I'm one of three girls, mum and dad, um, Jane, me and Claire. I'm the middle one, problem child. So dad, when he was 11, he saw a movie and he was just captivated by this image. And he said to his granddad, "What, what is that? And he said, oh, that's Australia. If you ever get the chance, you've got to live there. So Dad, at the age of 11, was like, right, I'm going to live in Australia. So when we did emigrate to Australia, I was three, and all we ever heard was, oh, this is so great. You know, Dad would look at brown grass and just say, look at the colour. And just so passionate, just loved it. So I've grown up loving the country. Like even... Even a disaster would impress Dad. He'd say, oh, you don't do this in England.
2: Nothing's this bad. You don't get bushfires so, like this in England.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Even a cold, wet day, he'd say, oh, even the rain's better over here. You
2: know? <laughs> I think I'd like you, Dad.
0: Yeah, so Dad's, you grew up with this um, person that just loves Australia and he ended up working at Adidas and he was setting up feeler um, later on, he ran Nike Australia. So I'd go to Dad's office and, I'd, and I worked out at the age of six when he was at Adidas, you know, I'd see Rob D. Stella rock up. He'd pick up all this gear. I'd see him on TV and everyone loved him. And I said to Dad, is that his job? And Dad goes, oh, yeah, if, you, if you're a world-class sports person in Australia, it's like you could be the Prime Minister.
2: Huh.
0: And I was like, Wow. And I love sport I got myself banned from team sports because apparently people don't play to win and um you know that was sort of like grade five level at school I was too aggressive and the school said to me you need to um, just do a sport where it's you so they just got me to run and I always wanted to to run for for Australia.
2: So what was your first race like what, what like as a as a as a little one can you remember? A first or one my, of the first races? Yeah, my
0: first race was a cross-country race in grade three at Wesley, Wesley College, and it was 2K and I came second. And, you know, it was boys and girls in those days, the school had just gone co-ed. And so the school said, okay, would you like to run for the school? And I was a bit young and, you know, they're doing all this because they were going co-ed. Mm-hmm. It used to be a boys' school. Let's give all the girls opportunities. So I started turning up to the APS when it was just a boys' competition And I would judge how well I was running by the number of boys that were crying after the race.
2: (laughs) That you'd (laughs) beat. Yeah.
0: I didn't realise it was so insulting.
1: I like um, it. (laughs) I like it. So
0: one particular race I came third overall. So there's only two boys that were okay with it. Then there was this big kerfuffle and APS introduced a girls' competition. Um, But my actual first race, my dad was very adamant. He could see that if I got a coach and started training, that I would just do whatever the coach said. I had no, I had no ability to work out what was too much work and what wasn't. So he held me back a lot, and he he, he said that when you're in Year Seven, you can do the state championships for the school's athletics. Um, and I did, and all I wanted to do was win a medal at that stage. And I did the eight and the fifteen, and I came fourth in both. And I was like, oh my god, I can't believe it. So I noticed there was a three k. And I worked out like seven and a half laps of the track. It's quite a bit of running. Mm. And I asked Dad if I could enter into that and we got a late entry and um, I managed, I won it and that was it. That was like, whoa, okay, I really love this.
2: Okay. So the flip side or the two sides of this, what, what did winning at that young age bring you?
0: It gave me the belief that this wasn't just, an idea in my head. It sort of confirmed that um, it was possible, and I think it wasn't so much the winning that I enjoyed. It was it was more my hatred of losing. So the winning gave me the satisfaction that I was doing it right.
2: We'll get to hatred of losing because that's it's either you're motivated to win or you're motivated not to lose. I've learnt yeah. that doing this podcast. So your running progressed and progressed and progressed, when do you start to think there's more than just running and how did that come to pass?
0: Well, I started, I was very fortunate at the end of school, um, we had a, a coach turn up, Matt Patterson, who was the training partner of Steve Ovette and so suddenly I had a coach that knew what it took and his his training was really quite tough, middle distance running, so he was adapting a lot of the sessions Steve Ovette did and I was suddenly started to run really well and, um, you know, started to run well cross-country, um, did a couple of road relays and I was always running well um, overseas.
2: What, what distance are we talking about when you're running overseas? Are these still? Well,
0: cross-country well, cross in those days was 6K. My okay. um, selection was off a 3K on the track that I did. I, it was around nine, just over nine minutes
2: Nine minutes, a three-minute K. three, minute three yeah. Holy moly. So
0: it was, wow. I mean, it was good and getting me into teams, but if you want to be a world-class runner, you need to run an 8.30 as a female. And you're not going to be able to find that 30 seconds in, you know, when you're 21, 22. You've got like five years. So my dad could see that I was a little bit frustrated because I have no patience. And he said to me, he was at Nike and, you know, people like Mark Allen were doing Hawaii Ironman mm. and stuff and, Dad said to me, why don't you try a local triathlon? And I was like, what, that swim, bike, run stuff? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, it's not even an Olympic sport. What's the point? And he said, oh, well, I think it will be.
2: What's the point?
0: (laughs) I think it will be. And I said, really? So we went down, you know, local race in Elwood in um, the bay. And it was a 750-metre swim, 20k bike, 5k run. And I thought, oh, it can't be that hard, you know. Looks around, there's a lot of people there, and I thought, if these, these people can all do it, I should be able to do it. Anyway, the swim was horrendous. I um, <laughs> <laughs> just lost seven minutes over 7.50, which is like the time it takes. Had no idea where I was, just got out of the water and got on my bike, and it was really, really messy. So I've spent all my life running in circles, in, you know, in uh, lanes, yeah, and then cross-country on courses where you could see where everyone was. And suddenly I was on a bike just riding as fast as I could, not even knowing where the first girl was.
2: So you just ride, you're, you're riding blindly at this point?
0: Yeah, I'm just riding flat out because I know that I swam really badly. So then I got to the end of the bike and I looked at Dad and Dad's like, I don't know what he, what's going on. So I just... Thought, well, I'll just run flat out. And every time I run past a girl, I'll ask her, Are you winning?
2: <laughs> How far's the run? How far's the run? Five. Five,
0: okay. Five K. So I'm running along, I get past the girl. Are you winning? No. <sighs> so I chase the next one down. Are you winning? No. Finally, with about a K and a half to go, I ran up to this girl and I said, Are you winning? She said, Yeah. And I said, Oh, good. <laughs> so I took her and I won. <laughs> and like <laughs> you would normally think, oh yeah, whatever. But Dad is very black and white, very much a figures man, um, you know, the data that does work, like actually logic data. Mm-hmm. And he worked out, he bought some triathlon magazines and he worked out from my results, if I learnt to swim, that was the big disclaimer, if I learnt to swim, um, I biked and outran everyone in the world in triathlon. So,
2: at, at, at that stage?
0: Yeah, he said it from one race. And then he said, I've looked at the calendar, um, And there's a world championship in New Zealand in 18 months' time. He said, you've got to race this summer, train through winter, race next summer, get in the team, stay in Australia, make sure you're still working on your skills, and then go and win the world title, first race. Wow. And um, that that was what we set out to do.
2: And we'll get to whether you got there... Or not? We call that a teaser in my caper, a little <laughs> teaser is what could potentially be coming. So how do you learn, uh, what was your first pool session and what was your, your swim coach saying? Oh, oh, we've got a bit of work to do here or?
0: Yeah, well, the swim was really hard because, you know, you've got some really good swim coaches in Melbourne. Um, I spoke to the VIS and the VIS said, look, Emma, if you're not going to take your athletics career seriously, uh, we're going to drop you. And I said, yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure I can win the world title. And they said, well, you're on an athletic scholarship, so you've just broken your scholarship rules. Hmm. So I was like, oh, shoot me. Um, <laughs> so I just contacted swim coaches. Um, and Dad at Nike, he was good friends. Raylene Boyle was still at Nike doing some work. And Raylene knows everyone in the sport. And so Dad said, we need a swim coach. Emily needs to learn to swim. And Raylene, she bought the idea you know, she didn't just fob it off as as most people did. And she said, right, okay. So she found this lady, Alwyn Barrett. A number of other coaches, you know, we'd ring him or we'd go and see him and say, look, you've got to teach us to swing. We've got to win a world title in 18 months. And um, they'd just say, look, get off my pool deck. You're an idiot. <laughs> um, but Alwyn, she was she was really good. She could see that we were fit. We just needed technique and skill and understanding. Um, but yeah, it was you know five sessions a week, two hours a session, just learning to swim, and swimming, triathlon swimming is just all about a fast two hundred meters. You don't worry about the distance because that's going to be covered off in all the volume of training that you do. So as long as you can do a fast two hundred with a good dive, you should be right.
2: Okay, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about in a in an in depth manner about training to be one of the best triathletes in the world. Let's say when you are fit and strong and you're in a training block, what does a week entail? And and, you know, you've obviously got three disciplines to cover. It'd be fair to say that anything I read about you, Em, is everyone says you're the hardest trainer they've ever seen. So I'll get to the The how you did it, but what were you requiring to do to become the best in the world, training volumes? What what did a week look like?
0: Well, looking back, um, I kind of played it up a little bit. So no one knew. So when I first started triathlon, I was told by Triathlon Australia that Victoria is no good for triathlon. You have to be from New South Wales or Queensland.
2: Because it's so cold down here.
0: Yeah, but like our summer is perfect because it's Mm. a dry summer. And when we're overseas, which is our winter, you're racing overseas and then, you know, so you're not, anyway, that was their idea. Um, So they didn't really know what I was doing and so I started to make numbers up because people didn't really believe me. So I basically got a middle distance run program. So I ran every day because I truly believed that my strength was in the run Mm -hmm. and I didn't want that strength to go. And there was a lot of, like easy running in there as well. So it's time on the legs. And um, I actually talked to Dee Costello, Rob he's He had a, a massage run idea where he would just go for a lazy two hours.
3: Wow.
0: <laughs> at an easy pace just to massage his legs. And I said to Deeks once, oh, I used to do your massage runs. And he said to me, I'm not sure they were, <laughs> they were really what I said they were. But anyway, so there's a lot of easy jogging in there. But hard stuff was hard, intense stuff, not a lot of volume, but it was intense. Um,
2: so it's what's intense? What, what, what distance is So
0: is... people, like when I coach now, some athletes say to me, oh, you know, how hard? And I go, well, you go flat out. And they're like, oh, okay, flat out. Um, so these were a lot of sessions from Matt Patterson that Steve Ovette did. So an example would be six by three minutes. Yep. Three minutes is hard. You run them out. Wait for a minute and you've got to make it back.
2: In that and same time that you went out in? Yeah. Right.
0: So it's six by three minutes. So you can do it with a group. So on the way out, I'd be last out because I'm the female. Yeah. And on the way back, I'd try and beat all the boys back. Okay. And it's, it keeps you honest because you can see what you're doing each time and it's run hard, that threshold running.
2: And what, so, so what type of speed are you doing on these?
0: Well, you try and get a K.
2: Okay, so three-minute Ks. Yeah,
0: you the know, boys would get a lot quicker than that. The boys would, you know, run. Um, I think our vet used to do like 1.2 or something
2: ridiculous. Hmm. So that, that's the running. The, now what about on the bike? The
0: bike was just three sessions a week.
2: What's a session?
0: Um, the bike was a total of about 200K a week, but it was always, always hills. So to start with, it was a 60K ride on a Monday, an 80K ride on a Wednesday and a 60K ride on a Friday. So you were just out in the hills suffering, um, windy, King Lake, you know, Whittlesea, windy, plenty road, miserable, just misery.
2: (laughs) Misery. Okay, so the bike sounds tough to me. And what about in the pool? What were you doing in the pool?
0: Well, the pool was you know five sessions a week, so Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, on pool day, at quarter five, in the water at five, finish at seven. And Tuesday, Thursdays were generally more sort of threshold stuff. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Um, the other sessions were sort of technique and skill and endurance. But you do about twenty-five
2: k a week. So she's a big week. A couple of thing, questions on that. What's <laughs> your what, When you were competing, what was your resting heart rate? Are you a Cadell Evans was, type freak? It was very
0: low, yeah. We did some um, – it used to drop – the reason I know this, AIS at one point built an altitude house ah. and they were trying to work out whether you should sleep at altitude and train at sea level. So they built this house, would sleep at altitude and then would train in Canberra. Uh-huh. And during the night we had to have our fingers stuck into a heart rate monitor and some poor, um, you know, physiologist was in the um, wherever it was checking our heart rate every half hour and my heart rate dropped below 28. So they came in to
2: see if I was okay. (laughs) So you're still ticking over.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because at altitude your heart rate is elevated. So 28 was an elevated heart rate at that point. So they came in to see if I was okay.
2: So if 28, you're, you're low, like that's crazy low resting. Yeah. And, and I did talk to Cadell about this and his threshold heart rate, I don't recall what it was, but I recall how long he stayed at it for. When you were at your most intense, sort of what, when yeah, you so, in that, yeah, yeah, and how long could you stick it for?
0: Well, that was the thing that I had. So I had a very low resting heart rate, which also meant my high my max wasn't that high. It was like a 176, it was below 180. But what I did have that was really efficient was a lactic tolerance. Yep. So I could get rid of lactic acid really, really efficiently. And so that meant that I could push myself at close to max for longer.
2: How much longer?
0: Well, I don't – who knows? Like how do you test that? Like because you're not being tested with someone Mm. else. But I could – like I had the confidence when I raced – that, you know, I stand up in the line, just look at them and just think, right girls, if you want to beat me, you're going to have to go to hell. And that was it, you know, good luck to anyone that wanted to race me because I was going to race until I died.
2: <laughs> it was that simple. Back to Emmy in a moment, huge announcement time. <laughs> the Howie Games range of merchandise is out now. Merchandise. Fair to say we might be getting a little bit carried away with ourselves. But anyway, jump on board, howiegames.com. It is all there. There's T-shirts, there's hats, there's jumpers, there's men's sizes, women's sizes, kids' sizes, enormous range. And the pickle and the penguin are in the garage ready to pack your order right now. Howiegames.com. Get stuck in because I think I overordered and it really might give us a massive financial hit here if you don't buy some. So thank you. Next up on the show, one of the best blokes in Australian sport, cricketer Mitch Marsh. Everyone that plays with Mitch loves him, everyone that meets him loves him, yet Mitch has copped all sorts of stick from the Australian public over the years. Sure, he accepts it's part of his job, but he's just like you and me. He's
1: human, and criticism is not an easy thing to deal with. Fans are so passionate, and that's what I love most about the Australian, uh, Australian fans, that they're passionate. And, and ultimately, if you don't do well, you're going to cop criticism, and that's the nature of the beast, and that's the nature of international sport, and that's absolutely fine. Um, and yeah, I still cock critis- criticism today, and um, I certainly um, handle that a lot better than what I used to, um, to the point where it actually doesn't affect me one bit anymore, um, which is a really good place to be in. But, yeah, at, at, um, one of my, um, not worst memories, but my probably my toughest day playing cricket for Australia was when I um, replaced Peter Hanscom at the MCG at Boxing Day. Yep. and uh seventy five thousand people on boxing day, and I came off the bowl on boxing day, and the whole crowd booed me and it was like a loud boo uh, and that I stood at the top of my mark and I was basically almost in tears at that point in time um, and I, I, that sounds dramatic enough but it, it's not you know it's uh it's game cricket but um that moment there was when that was one of the moments where I was like oh This is tough, you know, and uh, I remember going off at lunch and I was just basically in tears at the fact that, you know, I was getting booed by Australian cricket fans.
2: Yeah. That's Mitch Marsh next up on the podcast. Let's get back to Emma. So you you mentioned you're going to have to go to hell and you mentioned being out the back of King Lake and it being misery. <laughs> so there's two parts of sport. One is physical and one is mental. And there's so yeah. much more focus on mental now than even when you would have been competing. Where did you take yourself and how did you deal with it when things got really hard physically? I don't mean in a race or a race or training, but where did you go mentally that you were able to keep going when others couldn't? Well, there, I, there wasn't
0: really an option because I, I didn't wanna be beaten.
2: So there's no option to stop, so you just gotta keep going. No,
0: yeah, there's no option. So you've gotta, you know, before a race, So to win a race or to be the best in the world, you have to be fitter than everyone else and you have to know more than everyone else and understand the sport, the race, the competitors and how to race it better than anyone else. So as long as you've got those two nailed and then you get into a race situation, and you can get yourself out of every single tricky spot always like I don't care I don't care what the theories are and what because everyone sits me on you don't swim enough there's no way you'll ever do it so I became the greatest cyclist triathlon I ever saw and I still don't think people cycle properly and that's what I'm coaching athletes to do like I want them you watch the triathlon the Olympics, all, hmm. a couple of people go off the front, it doesn't work first or second time, they'll give up and roll around wait for the run. You should be able to blow that pack to smithereens. Hmm. And I used to enjoy doing that. So, and that was, you know, like and that didn't work. Well, okay, well, I've got the fastest run and I'm not saving my legs and if you want to save your legs, I'll still outrun you.
2: So that ability to take it. To the next level, mentally that strength that there's no other option was that innate, or is it something you can learn and teach yourself?
0: I think it is, and um,
2: is it innate, th- or you can teach it?
0: No, I don't think you can teach it.
2: It is. I don't you think are. you
0: can teach it, but I think you can. You can teach confidence, and um, you can teach and show athletes, you know, what they're worrying about can be dismissed, but it takes time. Um, for some reason in my life, I've never had time, never ever had time. And, you know, until the day I die, I'll always be thinking, oh, I've just run out of time. Okay, okay. <laughs> you okay. know, like everything has always been a rush. And I've, I've actually said to my athletes when they struggle with their self-belief, this is beyond me because I don't get it. I don't understand how you can't line up on a line, hate every single person that thinks that they can beat you and allow it to happen. Huh. So, um, yeah, that's an area of my coaching that I've said you're going to have to speak to a professional because I don't understand it.
2: So you had hatred?
0: Yeah, easily, yeah.
2: Did you, yeah. you hated them or they hated the fact that they could potentially beat you? or you? I hated
0: the fact that I could be beaten. Okay. I found it, um, well, just, I just couldn't allow it to happen because in sport, because everything always moves on without you. So if you're not remembered for what you contribute to your sport, you're very easily forgotten. And, you know, I grew up looking at these absolute legends in Australian sport and I thought, well, I've got to make sure that my contribution to Australian sport is good enough to be remembered. And that had to be, you had to be the best in the world.
2: Gee, it's a strong approach, Em. Like it's a a bloody strong approach, isn't it?
0: Well, it's funny because I was talking to, um, going back to the AIS, I was talking to Peter Condy and he said to me, yeah, Emma, you know, you could make a really good coach, but you've only got one athlete at the moment that is progressing through. And I said, Peter, how many Olympic gold medals are there in triathlon in the women's huh. event? <laughs> I said, isn't that the game? You have to, it has to be so hardcore that you have no choice other than to win. And that was every, every day of my life and it's, it's quite tiring. <laughs> I
2: was going to say, it must be exhausting.
0: <laughs> it is. It's, it, you know, when things are going well, it's, it's fine but when things fall apart and your critics get that one up on you um yeah i'm I'm actually really quite proud that i haven't um you know i've never relented on that and my coaching will be the same like everyone knows that i coach
2: athletes to win so let's skip then Your dad set it up. If you can get your swim to this level, we can go to New Zealand, Wellington in 18 months' time and win the world title. In Paris on
3: September the 4th, the International Olympic Committee voted to include triathlon on the program for the Sydney Olympics of the year 2000, and that brings an extra significance to the most important event of this year.
2: Tell me about your first ever crack at a world triathlon championship (laughs) in Wellington. (laughs)
0: Yeah, in Windy Wellington.
3: Windy Wellington. What about the conditions here today in Wellington? Because, in fact, they're far from ideal.
2: Conditions are tough, really tough. The wind's gusting at 30 mile an hour, maybe more. The cycle course is tough. It's cold. But it goes with the job. They're professionals. There's a professional job to do. The attitude is right. They'll just get out there and get on with it.
0: So um, it was a pretty good course. It was a really, really messy swim, which I quite liked because I was a messy swimmer. So why not make everyone have to swim messy? Wetsuit swim, so that was in my advantage because my ass doesn't float as well as good swimmers.
3: <laughs> I don't know what, what I do. And there's Emma Carney of Australia, whose sister has already won the junior race this morning. And Emma Carney's swim time is extraordinary. That's one of the best swim times she's ever achieved. Tenth place for her. She leaves transition.
0: Hilly bike, tough hilly bike. And, you know, windy, tough run of a tough bike. So I had, knew the course inside out. I actually went over um, the year before and raced the New Zealand Nationals just to make sure I knew everything. And um, anyway, a couple of days before the race, they had a press conference. And I said to Dad, they haven't invited me. And Dad goes, well, no one knows who you are. You've never raced. And I said, yeah, but I'm going to win. Like, <laughs> is anyone not looking at the form guide? <laughs> and, like, for the first time, Dad was really like, then I mean, you don't understand. People aren't just going to guess that you're going to win. Like imagine the odds that it would have been oh, on me.
2: I know. Anyway. That's, the, that's my <laughs> first thought. When I read your book, I thought, wow, back in 94, I, I could have paid for my whole university course yeah. here. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I know. Um, but there was absolutely no way I could see that I was going to get beaten. Like in no way. Um, I had a pretty good swim. Ten after the swim? Yeah, got out on the bike, which is good for me, like on a bike. Well, at, currently in triathlon, they say if, you, if you're more than 40 seconds down out of the water, you can never win a triathlon. Now that's a big call when the swim is 12 percent of the race.
2: Well How much were you have been down after the 12 percent of the swim? Oof.
0: I was about 30 seconds down.
2: Okay. Now,
3: there's Emma Carney, the Australian. She's coming through well. Sensational swim time from Emma moving up through the field. This
0: was the day of non-drafting. This was the last world yep. championship where it was non-drafting. So that was, you know, you couldn't sit with other athletes. So it basically came down to the individual cycling ability. Um, so I had that covered in, within 5K. I was up at
3: the front. And the women are at the five-kilometre point. The men are halfway through their bike section. Here's Emma Carney of Australia, and she's powering through the field. She's coming up alongside Sabina Vestoff, and he's about to take her. This is extraordinary. We've seen nothing at all of Emma Carney on the ITU World Cup Tour this year, but she's putting in a spirited performance here. She's overtaken Vestoff. Vestoff's coming back at her. And Vestoff herself must be thinking, who on earth is this in the Australian kit? Because it's not Rena Bradshaw, it's someone unknown or relatively unknown to the top Europeans.
0: All the girls are looking at me, like, who the hell's this? <laughs> and I could sense it. And I thought, oh good, I'm gonna act really as if I know what I'm doing. Cause I didn't, I just knew how to go hard.
3: Anna Carney on her way out of transition. She leads Sarah Harrow, Pedersen is third, And Keat, another New Zealander, is fourth and Jenny Rose, World Cup leader, is fifth.
2: 46 seconds faster on the bike than anyone else in the field.
0: Yeah. Well, I kind of mucked around a little
2: bit. Well, not too much. You're 46 seconds well, faster <laughs> than anyone on the field. <laughs> well, no,
0: I sort of at the start, there's one girl had kind a of crash in front of me and I could sort of see she was going to do that. And then got through her and then a Kiwi girl came in front of me and I thought I'll let her just, you know, have five minutes of fun because I wanted to attack up the hill because we had a climb to go up, a big descent, and then it was a big nice time trial into some wind and I wanted to make sure I'd spat everyone and they were all suffering and I was out of sight because you want to do that. Um, Anyway, my plan worked a treat. Then it came to the run and I thought, well, Might as well just go flat out, see how much
2: I can win by. How far's the run? uh, 10K. So what would you have done the 10K in?
0: Oh, it wouldn't have been that quick. I don't know, 35? I I can't can't remember. It wouldn't have
2: been that quick, she says. Well, you know,
0: you look at what they do in the athletics, and they run like 29s now. Yeah, but
2: they haven't swum and ridden at that stage anyway. (laughs) Sorry, so go on. So you get to the run.
0: Yeah, so got to the run and... Yeah, I ran pretty comfy.
3: And it's this lady's day today here in Wellington, the World Championship title within sight for Emma Carney of Australia.
0: Ran hard. And I thought, it was out and back twice, and I thought if I can get out and back and then out, turn around and I can't see anyone, because there's a little bit of a bend in the room and I can't see anyone, I reckon I've won. So for the last sort of K and a half, I thought, wow, I've, I've won. And the funny thing was my little sister, she was also in on this plan. She'd done the junior world titles the the couple of hours before, and she'd already won. So like, I couldn't go and screw up and be the big loser of the family
3: and not win. (laughs) Carney now comes into the final straight. The Australian support here is enormous. There are many, many Australians who have traveled over to watch this race, and hundreds and hundreds of athletes who have been taking part.
0: as we were running down the finishing shoot, the one thing I hadn't planned on because everything else I'd already seen and planned and that was going to happen, I didn't, as I was coming down the finishing shoot, you hear people say, who's that? <laughs> so if you look at the photos of me finishing, I'm actually looking down because it's, it's actually quite embarrassing because everyone's like, who the
2: hell that? Well, you're you won by two minutes and 12 seconds. and The commentary says something on the lines of this is a big surprise.
3: Yeah, I know, yeah. Emma Carney comes home, perhaps a surprise, but no doubt worthy. Carney is the world champion for 1994.
0: There was, some um, yeah, the commentary was really quite unfair on me. They said, oh, you know, Emma would be really surprised by this. And, um, but no, it was the most expected win I've ever had.
2: So we're learning how driven you are and your approach to winning, When you cross the line and you are a world champion, how do you feel and is there any time to rest on your laurels?
0: Yeah, No, I never rested. The only time I've ever reflected back on my career was when I wrote my book and I wasn't at all impressed or proud of what I'd achieved until I wrote my book.
2: So when you cross the line, how much joy is there or what is the feeling when you cross the line? when you're the, the world triathlon champion that no one had heard of?
0: It's more relief than anything because you've, you've actually achieved it. I mean, I know Triathlon Australia officials were betting against me. They're like, there's no way Carney will win. So that was kind of nice, you know, because you see a couple of officials and you turn your back to them. Um, my dad had the hardest time on the day. He So when, it, when an athlete's going to win a world title, their parents are generally given some VIP passes to get to the finishing area and, um, you know, Dad had Claire and I. Claire won the Junior World title a little bit earlier and he'd gone to the finishing area and said to the security guard, mate, I haven't got a pass but my daughter's about to win. No one expected it. Can you <laughs> let me in? So dad, you know, security guard goes, stand over there and just keep it quiet. So dad goes in there and, you know, gets into it. And then... You know, a couple of hours later, Dad's back, and you will go, "Hey, mate, you never believe it."
1: <laughs> My other daughter, who's yeah, sure, make sure. Yeah, get
0: lost. <laughs> Fortunately, someone inside saw Dad, but to um, so Dad had the hardest time. But yeah, when you win a major race, it's it is more relief, and there's no sort of you know standing around. You, you got you know you got to do your, your immediate uh, interviews, you know, off the back as soon as you cross the line. Then you're taken away for drug testing. Um, Being an endurance sport, you're genuinely in drug drug testing for two to three hours. So when I came back, (laughs) pretty much the day was over. And um, I was then taken into a press conference and I'd never been to a press conference before and everyone had been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting because no one had even interviewed me before. So everyone was. it was the most packed press conference of the weekend and I sort of sat there and they said, <laughs> I remember they said something like, Who are you? <laughs> wow. I said, Ugh. So yeah, it
2: was it was odd. That's the end of Emma Carney Part A. M's Brush with Death, that's in Part B. See you there, Legends.
1: Listener.